Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. So today I'm here with Gary. Say your last name for me one more time, man. Gusano. Gusano. All right, here yeah, I'm here with I'm here with Gary. Gary is the CEO of Real Defense, which owns over 12 brands in the uh, computer security place. He's even looking to acquire more B2C and B2B software as service companies. Hey, welcome, Gary. Thank you for being here, man. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Let's just start off where I start every show off. Let's get people to kind of know who you are. What kind of started yourself? What started you? You know your journey down the entrepreneur space. I jokingly say, "Okay, you were born, and then now you ended up on my show." What kind of fill in the gap in between? Sure, sure, no worries. Um, yeah, I started uh, in, in the direct marketing space. I had a, a company in the late '90s, actually, that did uh, everything digital. We did website design. We did. Uh, pay-per-click advertising, display advertising. And my, my clients, my uh, early clients were AT&T and uh, Atlantic Richfield, which is a, a big oil company, British Petroleum, um, Sony, Disney, and, and all these big brands that wanted to have a digital presence. And they also wanted to do custom acquisition online. And so we, we started with pay-per-click advertising before Google even became a search engine that we know today. And so um, if you recall back in the day, we had Alta Vista and GoTo and all these different search engines that don't exist today. And so that was my my entry into digital world. And then uh, kind of skip forward. I, I uh, started a cybersecurity company in 2003 um, called Cyber Defender. We took it public. And then in 2011, I was asked to... Uh, help a company called Anchor Free. They have a product called Hotspot Shield. It's the most popular VPN product in the world. And we were very successful during the Arab Spring. We kind of enabled Twitter and YouTube to work um, around the world and or in areas of the world where it was prohibited to, uh, to access social media. And then uh, 2015, I launched a, uh, I co-founded a company called Incast. It's a, uh, a, a influencer marketing platform. And we brought TikTok to South America, and then we brought TikTok to the United States and, and helped sort of orchestrate its move to the top. Um, and in 2018, I co-founded a company called Real Defense Holdings. It's a uh, acquisition company that acquires consumer privacy and security companies. And we've done some acquisitions uh, and continue to do more. And we're building a, a, um, a consortium of products and services focused around consumer privacy and security uh, services around um, uh, uh, for North America and Western Europe, where consumers can access our antivirus technologies to tech support to VPNs and whatever they need to stay safe online. So you've got a holding company; they're buying security companies now. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of just just run through that process. You know, you're out there; you're looking for companies that um, complement. If you're looking like in most uh, uh, private equity or holding companies, you're looking for things that complement the set of customer base you already have that add value right. to the product. What is your selection criteria? I mean, what what do you look for in a company? Sure. So this is quite a bit of few uh, few things, but um, uh, our, we like companies that are divestitures or uh, carve outs from bigger companies. So there are a lot of big companies out there, multi-billion conglomerates. 
that have these divisions that are just not being managed. And so they're, they're too small or not in the target of their uh, uh, you know, priorities. And so they kind of get ignored. Um, so that's one of our, uh, that's one of the areas that we look for, one of the opportunities we look for. Um, we also look for companies that are uh, maybe too small for bigger entities to acquire or VCs to look at or not growing as fast, but need some type of management to accelerate their performance or as stagnant. In other words, they've raised money, they performed at some point and then later flattened out. And so now they're not interesting anymore. And so um, not so much focused on high growth, high value companies that are coming out of Silicon Valley where they're, you know, multi-billion dollar valuations, but that's not our focus. And, and also the other thing is there's not a lot of innovation in the consumer privacy and security space. Most of the, the companies that are out there are focused on enterprise and rightfully so because there's more opportunity, there's more money being spent, that, that's understandable. But on the consumer security and privacy side, there's just not a lot of options. And so we're trying to figure out how to uh, build better products, how to creatively create a uh, an, an entity that has uh, uh, addresses all the categories that, that need to be addressed from VPN to antivirus to tech support to, um, you know, safe search. And so we've done a pretty good job in sort of creating these components or adding these components to our, uh, to our holding company. Um, we're still far away from where we want to be, but things are moving in the right direction. You have a unique advantage. I was looking at your website. You have a user base, according to your website, of above a million users and have a, have your software deployed on it set over 100 million machines. So how does that impact? Like, I see why you say you don't, you're not looking for high growth, high value, because you have a user base. If they have a valid, great product, then you have a base to sell it to, right? Yeah, yeah. Those are actually paying customers, uh, just to be clear. Um, they're not free users. They, our business model is, is really comes in sort of uh, two flavors. We, se we sell direct to consumers. So Google and display advertising, television, et cetera. We also license our technology. So a lot of our uh, licensing partners are well-known antivirus companies who take our code base and put it in their own applications. And so we uh, are partnered with some of the biggest media antivirus companies around the world. Um, we're partnered with uh, uh, device manufacturers like Dell, Lenovo, and all, all the hardware manufacturers that you've heard of. And we're also uh, uh, in 20,000 retail locations. And so... We're, you know, covering all the uh, all the sort of customer acquisition opportunities, and uh, any company that we do acquire, we offer that those those channels to them, and so uh, it makes perfect sense to do product acquisitions and, and companies that are don't have, for instance, retail distribution like we do, or doesn't have the licensing channel uh, that we have. Uh, it makes sense for us to it makes sense for us to do these deals. That's that's really cool in the in the. You know, a lot of the guys that are listening to the show, they're wanting to get there. They're they're looking for their anchor company, and they're going to bolt onto it and bolt onto it and bolt on it. You're well down this path. So I think there's a lot more people to learn from you. Um, like, what's a? I mean, let's just kind of jump into some cool ideas here. What's like a red flag? You're you're talking to a company, you're starting to evaluate them, you're thinking about bringing them in. Is there any kind of thing that can go on that's like a real knee jerk reaction? Like, ah, I got it. I can't can't get into this one. Sure. Uh, there's a couple of them. Uh, one is uh, companies who don't know how to properly quantify discretionary earnings. And so, you know, they'll run their, you know, car payments and all this personal expense through the company. And they either don't back them out correctly, meaning that 
they're making it seem like it's part of the cost and, and it maybe shouldn't be. And so their profitability should be higher. Or they take too much out where they say, oh, that's personal expense when in fact it's not. And so um, when a company gets really small and like the CEO doesn't want to stay with the, with the company and wants to leave, you have to understand that, it, you know, in, in many instances, you have to have someone there to run that business. Like it's not going to run by itself. And so um, quantifying those costs and, 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 and coming up with evaluation that's reasonable uh, after you've adjusted the expenses, it's sort of a challenge. And, and some business owners um, are not advised correctly with through the broker. So they'll get into this, you know, a, a very sort of challenging financial documentation um, you know, spectrum where they keep adding and subtracting and it just becomes messy. So the smaller the company, the more difficult it is to do that. The bigger the company, less less difficult because you have um, uh, bigger staff and you can always say, well, who's number two in the company? Who's number three? And then you can, you know, figure that out from going that, that direction. Um, the other one is uh, uh, compliance and, and companies that, you know, are flying fast and, and maybe not sort of covering all the, you know, all the areas that they should be covering in terms of cybersecurity, in terms of how they deal with personal uh, PII data, and, uh, you know, are they following PCI compliance rules and doing all the sort of, the, the you know, the basic industry standards. And so, um, and, and, and when a business is small, sometimes they don't even know that they're not out of compliance. And so you have to remind them that they need to be in compliance and bring them into compliance. And so we've done an acquisition once where the company was out of compliance in certain areas and they didn't know how to become compliant, but they knew they had to be compliant. And so that that made it easier for us to uh, fix it and, and bring them to compliance. But those are the two areas. You know, compliance is one. The other one is, uh, uh, you know, how to uh, sort of how companies quantify their financials, you know, and that's, when you're less than, if you're a 10, 15 million dollar company or smaller, that becomes challenging. You know, it's interesting that actually uh, one of the companies I consulted for was trying to go into business in Europe. And a lot of people don't understand that every country, every, um, you know, pretty much every uh, legal you know country has its own set of compliance rules. I think uh, yeah. they used to call it, I don't know what they call it now, but it was called like safe harbor or something like that. To You had security guidelines to do business in Europe. So uh Correct. I was consulted to bring into one of these companies that wanted to take a mapping software tool. And this is years ago. Now Google does better mapping than any of them, but a mapping and direction tool to Europe. And I had to go through their safety and security protocols and all their stuff and rewrite their operational manuals and everything. So we could get them safe Harbor certified. So I get, I get yeah. that like compliance, you know, different. And if you go into different markets that opens up doors to like, you know, Okay, we're using this type of encryption here, and you can't do that across the, right. you know, over in the Europe and those other countries because the U.S. won't allow it. So uh, I, I get the complexity of compliance and stuff. The, what you thought up first about the discretionary earnings and stuff was interesting because it's come up on the last three shows I've recorded. It's been a conversation over the last couple of shows here that I've recorded, and some of them aren't out yet. So the guys that are listening go, I've heard that one. Um, that you kind of got to look past that a little bit and go, do I have a product here I can work with? And, you know, it sounds like you already do that. You already like, yeah. you just, you just have to do the correction of, yeah, you think your evaluation's here, but you can't add back in, you know, 200 grand a year, uh, you know, based off some car leases and stuff, you know? Um, yeah. So, so yeah, it's interesting. It's a really important point, actually. We can talk more about it. And um, there are, 
instances where, for instance, first of all, depends on who, let's just talk about who is the buyer of the company. There's two types of buyers, strategic and financial. A financial buyer is interested in taking your business as is and operationally maybe optimizing it, but wants to keep the business going as is and grow it, whether they're adding additional capital for improving marketing or they're doing something else to the company to make it function better, right? So that's a financial buyer. Most financial buyers don't necessarily want to replace the management team or they want to keep them. They want to keep the staff and, and let and let them keep going. And so for that type of buyer, you, you have to present your financials in such a way that, that makes sense for them because otherwise they're not going to value the business high. A strategic buyer is less interested about um, that than adding what you're selling to their current organization, right? And so they may be okay with the, the management team leaving because they just want the product. So they may, they may be okay with the whole company leaving as long as the product is functioning. And so in that scenario, you can quantify that outcome differently in terms of how you present it to the buyer and say, look, if you did these things with synergies, you would have this financial outlook. And that financial outlook is very different than a buyer who's looking to buy you and let you stay on board and pay you, keep, keep paying your salaries. Right? So that's, as a seller, you need to understand who the buyer is. In terms of discretionary earnings, it's important to separate personal expenses from the business. It's very simple. If you have a car payment that you're paying through the business, it's not going to be a, a new expense for the buyer, right? They're not assuming your car payments or your leases, right? So it's in your favor if you take those expenses out. What you have to be careful is if you are the CEO of the company, there's 10 employees, and you're the only person that's responsible for bringing in your business, you're a salesperson in your company, which a lot of times the CEO is that person, BD, sales, all that. You cannot say to the buyer that you're going to leave the day the, the deal closes, and then suddenly the, the guy who's making all the girls, making everything happen is gone, and somehow the business is worth the same. It's not worth the same because the, the person who's generating the business is gone. So you have to then say, okay, so if you have to replace me, what would that cost? Well, it's not free. So it's, there's a cost, a CEO. You know, if it's California, you're looking at a few hundred thousand dollars plus for a CEO. And if it's a bigger company, it could be millions of dollars a year. And so you, you have to look at that as a seller and understand a more sophisticated buyer is going to want to understand these things. A less sophisticated buyer may, may say, or, or maybe somebody who just wants to be the CEO and an operator, then it's fine. Then they come in and say, look, I'm going to take over the reins. I'm going to run the business day to day. I don't care about what your current situation is. I'm, I'm going to be the one responsible. So for that, that's a different buyer to me too. So we're an institutional buyer. So for us, it's about understanding these metrics very clearly. And so we, we, we try to go for businesses that have this documented very well. But if you know, we bought a company once that, that didn't have an audit done in, in like 24 months. And so we had to perform what's called quality of earnings and say uh, financial diligence process. And we look at all, all the, uh, you know, bank statements and all the receipts and everything. And we make sure that it's in line with what the company presented to us. And, you know, usually people like tell the truth, you know, it's, it's, they might be off a little bit here and there, but generally speaking, the business owners are honest and they present information as best as they can. And with some adjustments, you come to some, you know, reasonable reality there and make and make, a, and make a deal happen. But um, I've seen a few transactions where uh, the company had no, everything was out of order and the financials are not gelling and 
they're all over the place and nobody nobody ultimately buys it because of that so that's really important it's it's important to have a good accounting team or a bookkeeper or somebody you trust and they can organize your information as long as it's it's truthful you know you can you can figure out a way how to fix something in terms of improving it by improving sales or you know reducing your expenses but if that information isn't accurate it's hard to you know it's hard to fix because you can't you can't measure it some cases you'll find these CEOs where they're doing four or five roles, right? Three or four. Like they're the top sales guy. You know, I was uh, talking to a guy and um, he was looking at a machine shop and the guy was the top sales guy, landed all their clients. He actually repaired the machine. Like when something wrong went wrong in one of the machines and the, the thing, he was the maintenance guy, right? He was a CEO and uh, he did like one other role. I forgot what it was, but uh, basically did all the HR. It was a 15, 20 person company. Right. Wow. And I was like, when you go to, you know, when he, and he's, and he, and he needs to retire, he's got medical issues and um, he's going to retire whether he wants to or not kind of thing. I don't want to go too much into that, but um, you know, what he didn't realize is like, okay, there's no other person on this planet that's going to pull 68 hours a week. The reason that you do it is you own it. And he, right. and he paid himself like a minuscule amount, like forty or fifty thousand dollars a year, and it's Tulsa, Oklahoma, you know, the kind of area. It was a little north of here, so that's not a horrible salary. And then if he had a great year, he gave himself bonuses, right? So on great right. profitable years, he did a you know, distribution. I think that doesn't work when you look at. There's no way that you know, you're, I'm going to have to you know, the, or the the guy that was going to buy this, he's going to have to hire three, maybe four people. Because nobody's going to pull 68 hours a week and juggle those, right? Those four or five jobs. There's no way to replace that. It's going to, you know, you know, and the, even here, the CEO for that spot is probably an eighty dollars to $120,000 job, right? The sales rep's going to be, you know, for that, they're a decent-sized company, probably going to be pushing, you know, 80, 90, you know, with commissions and everything. You know, it's. A, I think he did the math. It was at $350,000, you know, a year, expense to replace all the tasks this one guy was paying himself 40 grand a year for <laughs> and yeah. it just wasn't going to work right like you know the buyer of that is almost going to have to be an owner operator or right. you know they need to scale the business up put those people in one by one and you know and scale it to where it's running with those individuals running it then look at selling it so i can see you know where the owner wants to leave and they're taking on multiple roles you know just you know adding a single person salary back in isn't going to help you much. I'd say it's an interesting point. So for, um, you know, I have friends that have small businesses and they, and they have the same problem all the time. And they, they come to me and they say, look, how do I deal with this? And my recommendation is, 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 is the following. First, you got to know how to delegate to people. You can't do it all. It's impossible. There's no, you can't be the CEO and the accountant and the bookkeeper and the whole thing. You got to delegate. And, it's okay if when, when you delegate to someone that they don't necessarily perform at your level because that's part of the reason they don't want to delegate it's because they're afraid that the other person is not going to do it the way they expect them to do it. That's a process you got to go through. Let the person fail a few times. Teach them how to do it correctly. Be a mentor. Be a guide. Be the, the, the boss and let them figure it out. And then you'll have that leverage because now you've got more time. You've just delegated somebody else now you have that time that you've gained to do something more which should be selling or raising money or figuring out the next product or figuring out the next marketing strategy right so a lot of business owners don't know how to do that that's one of the biggest reasons why businesses fail one of the biggest reasons they don't sell okay is because they don't know how to 
uh, you know, delegate to others. The other one is uh, understanding, um, you know, priorities in your business. Okay, priorities is everything, and, and it's time, right? So time equals priority equals value, right? If you don't know, like of the ten things you're doing every day, if you don't know which of them is a priority based on the economic reward that you're going to get from that activity, then you shouldn't do it until you figure out why you're doing it. So figure out why you're doing it and then rank those priorities in order of number one, number two, number three, number four, and then go execute and tell your team to do the same. If you can't do that as a CEO, you're just running around being busy. It's interesting you know, as I, I go through an audit regularly, like, is this the highest and best use of my time? And if I look at it and go, no, I have a whole team, you know, even me, you know, an acquisitions entrepreneur owns a few businesses. I have a whole team of people, support staff, and even virtual assistants around the world. They go, I shouldn't be clicking on this and doing this for 20 minutes every day. This is something anybody can do. It needs to get done. It's part of a business. It needs to happen. It doesn't need to happen right. by me. And to right. be able to clearly see that, I think is a skill that a lot of people need to learn, right? It's just, it's just, I didn't, it wasn't default to me. One of my uh, team members on there, I seen him do it and he was way more efficient at things. Right. He, started, he started bringing on VAs to do stuff we were both doing on a big roll-up project together. And I'm like, I need to go get a VA. You get a lot more done than I do. And then, right. you know, after hiring one, it was like, wow, you know, uh, that's, that's pretty impressive. I get, you know, five times done, uh, more work done this week, you know, um, I, I don't think that it's natural for most entrepreneurs because we're creative. We want to solve problems and we see something in front of it and it's kind of a ready, fire, aim mentality. I just jump in, you know, we just jump in and get it done because it needs to happen sure. instead of taking a step back and go, yes, it needs to get done, but do I need to be the person doing it? Right. Right. And, 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 and the, other th the other thing is, is how you communicate these priorities. It's really important that you don't become a micromanager. Okay. And, and small business owners are, the most biggest micromanagers on a planet. They want to know everything in every possible way, sideways and forward. What you need to do is say to, to the person you're delegating to, empower them versus micromanage them, right? And by empowering someone is by saying, here's my ultimate goal. I want you to you know, close this sale, right? Here's the tools to close the sale. But don't tell that that salesperson to make to get up at six o'clock in the morning and make, make coffee at 6.30, make a phone call at 7 a.m., send a proposal at 7.15. Like you start doing that kind of stuff, they're not going to perform because they're going to get tired of being micromanaged and you're going to be overwhelmed by doing these little small little tasks. And so, and, and if the person can't execute, if you've given someone a task and their responsibility is to do sales, you've given them the tools, you've given them the know-how, the training, the, the, the resources, and they can't perform, cut the losses quickly, fail fast. Okay, don't don't think that it's going to change dramatically because you're going to be nicer one day. You're going to bring donuts to the office like that stuff doesn't work. They're either capable or they're not capable. And you have to give them the right period of time to figure this out. And, you know, you can't be too aggressive, but you have to know when to cut your losses. And I see a lot of businesses, they'll hang on to people for years and they'll say, oh, it's going to work out one day. Are they going to change or they're going to. Their life is not in the right place, and there's all these reasons, and, and and you have to be, you know, sensitive to them. I'm not saying don't be, but at some point you have to say what's really important at the end of the day. Because I'm supporting an organization, maybe my own family, maybe my own other employees who have families who have to be supported. Like think about the organization, not just that one person, right? So 
Um, I think that's important to small businesses, to know how to move quickly, make these decisions fast, and not be so worried about every little, you know, minuscule step that takes place because you can't control it all. I like uh, Perry Marshall has a book out by the uh, on the 80 uh, 80 20 principle. He didn't come up with it, of course, but it was something he took it to another level. He's like the, you know, if you look at the 80 20 and you only focus on the 20, you could break that 20 percent down into an 80 20 rule. Right. You know, inside of that and and you just keep going on and on and and you'll get to things that are so impactful to you. One of the cool things he does, and I've tried this on the last uh, uh, last hire I did. He'll like if he needs a sales guy, he'll hire ten of them, and he gives them a, like either a, a two week or a thirty day challenge, and yeah. everybody gets the same parameters: do this, this, and this, and you know, and close as many business deals as you can in thirty days. Or for me, it's like uh, it was a, a a virtual assistant and some social media management. I was like, you manage this account, you manage that one, and I give everybody something different. And then within thirty days, I see who who performs best, and you keep the top two because eight or nine of them are just like. Three or four of them are just not going to show up and do anything. A couple of them are going to be mediocre, and one or two are just going to rock it and shine above everybody else, and you keep those guys. So I love the model that he came up with. I don't know that everybody's business can do that, but you do have to, you know, what they say hire slow and fire fast, right? Um, yeah, I, I, I believe in that. I think that uh, a lot of people hold on to, to people way longer than they should. I mean, I can think, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I don't make the best employee. And I can think of a few businesses that held on to me way longer than they should because <laughs> <laughs> I was done with them way before they were done with me. Right. Um, well, it, it's, you don't necessarily have to fire people either. You, you can just reassign them. Yeah. Sometimes a, a salesperson is not a salesperson. Maybe they're a customer support specialist or a account manager and not a, not a hunter. And so, you know, you also have to look at their background and see when you're hiring them, do they have a quantifiable sales record. You know, can they prove that they deliver? Can they show you results? And if they, if you can't put your finger on their previous experience and can't quantify the previous experience, you're, it's not, it's, 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 they're not the right person for you. And so um, hiring is really important. I mean, at the end of the day, what do you have if you don't have people in your company, right? Absolutely. Uh, it's a people business. Uh, acquisitions is a people business. You get to a certain level and people think it's the offer, it's the structure, it's all this. But the reason a lot of these business uh, acquisitions and mergers fails, is the integration fails. They fail yeah. to match the human uh, nature, the culture, the uh, human expectations of all the employees. And they start losing them and the thing crashes or burns or it never integrates in because there's resistance, right? And that's all done through proper communication and set, you know, setting expectations and, uh, you know, and communicating well. Um, I always tease it, you know, around, I, I, I have the running joke that what's the number one cause for divorce? And everybody's like, oh, like, well, it's marriage. The number one cause for divorce is marriage because you'd never get divorced if you were not married. The second one is uh, unmet expectations. Both parties have expectations of the other party that they're just, they were eyes of grandeur or something. So it's a, it's a breakdown of communication. And it happens in business all the time. There's this expectation or lack of expectation. And I think that's the biggest downfall in a lot of integrations is they fail to meet the culture, the human needs, to set the expectations and meet the expectations, right? right? And if you don't set expectations for your employees, and especially when you're acquiring something, you'll say, here's what's going to happen next. Here's the opportunity there's in front of you if you perform and stay around and stuff. If you don't do that, they develop an own, that own expectation in their head, and you have no idea what to meet. 
Well, yeah, a lot of people, a lot of employees, when a company gets acquired, their first thought in their mind is that they're going to get fired. Because that's sometimes that does happen because companies want to, uh, you know, create synergies and they think there's duplicates and they, they fire people. Um, we don't do that. We, we actually do the opposite. We want to keep as many people as possible. One of the acquisitions, acquisitions we did recently, we gave everyone unlimited time off. We said, you can take as much time off as you want. You want to take a month off, two months off, you can do so. And so we we gave them bonuses. We gave salary increases. We gave you know unlimited PTO. And we do so because we want to be perceived and, and, and want to be valued as someone who's doing a better job than the previous team and, and, and want to keep people around and not, not let them go. Our space is a little different. You know, we operate in this consumer privacy and security spectrum. The knowledge that exists out there in the, you know, in the, in the developer community, as you can imagine, is very limited. And so it, it's, it's limited for, for many reasons. It's not because uh, there's not, not a lot of people understand it. And so, you know, when you look for developers in this space, you're not going to come across a, a big pool of, of people to pull from. And so um, it's different for us, but in other industries, there's, there's more, there's more flexibility. And so um, anyway, as an acquirer, I think you need to, you need to look at the cultural mix and find a way to create an immediate sort of um, value once you've done the acquisition or merger there where your, your staff and the new teams are, are uh, compelled to stick around and think that you're going to do a better job than the previous uh, team, the previous management. Cool. I, and I, I like that. You know, you brought up something at the beginning of the way you do, like where you source deals from that I don't think I've had any guests talk about. So I want to dive into it. Let's talk a little bit about divestures. Basically, big companies bought something not working or it doesn't fit in. They got what they wanted out of it. Some of these big tech companies, they buy something for a couple of the engineers and one of the technologies and they don't need the product and they don't need the rest of the team. But, you know, right. they got what they wanted. Google and a lot of the big guys, they do it a lot. They, they buy. Absolutely. You know, they buy they what I call aqua hire, or I think it's a common phrase inside of the industry. They acquire, you know, great engineers and stuff through acquisitions. And then later on, they figure out they just don't need the product, right? Right. So, how do you source those? Where do those come from? Tell me about like, you know, what's the difference? Is there any? What are the similarities and difference from buying a divestor from talking to some founder somewhere and buying that? Sure. So first of all, these are all personal relationships, right? And you're not going to, there's no platform, there's no website, there's no broker you go to. It's not something that's sitting out there on the internet. You literally have to call someone on the management team, one of the investors, one of the board members, and create dialogue with them, already have a relationship with them. And you may even offer it and say, hey, look, I know you have this asset over here. I know it's not your priority. Do you want to dive? You want to sell it to us, and they may say yes or no, depending on the circumstances. Or they may say no today, and then a year later they may say yes, depending on you know where they're at. And so you just have to maintain those relationships. And so that's the best deal you're going to make in terms of value, because you have a deal that's not publicly marketed. There's no broker actively trying to sell the asset, and you're making an offer in a non-competing environment. So you're making an offer for a company that may have gotten more you know from from if it was a publicly traded uh, publicly offered transaction and so you're you're going to do better there also you kind of want to buy an asset that's not being sold right because it's probably doing good but it's just not priority right within a larger company so we found a few of those and we, we've done well with them. in fact every deal we've done is, is comes from this type of it's from relationships we already have 
if you don't have the relationships, you need to build them. You know, if, if you're a company that makes, uh, you know, furniture, you, you should know other people who make furniture in your city or other cities that are your size. You should have drinks with these people, have dinner with them, socialize with them and figure out what they're doing. And maybe they, they, um, they want to part ways with, uh, with their business. And so that's the best way. Now, there are brokers out there uh, that, that, that sell businesses. You get on their list and kind of look at their flow of deals. And I, I you know, I, to be honest, in a, in a sub $50 million uh, value market and sort of the small business, I found those deals to be not so interesting. They're, they're always like, there's always something wrong. There's like some kind of fundamental problem with the company. And so um, I would be careful for, with those types of deals. Uh, sourcing on your own is the best. Just going to the, to the owner and saying, hey, I want to buy you. What, you know, what, what would it take? If you can have those conversations with people, you'll probably do better than going to a broker and having the broker. Well, the bro you can ask the broker to do it for you. There are companies out there that you can hire and they'll go and find you deals if you tell them your criteria. So that also can work. And uh, one of the things I've even tried is I reach out to business owners all the time and I like, Hey, I know you're in the, I don't know, picking something off. I was, I've got a buddy who's in the automotive space. He's, uh, we were looking at the automotive companies, engine rebuilders and all that stuff this morning. We'll talk to these, uh, we'll call all the auto uh, rebuilders in town, the engine rebuilders and say, Hey, look, we, uh, we have a company in this space. We like to kind of expand into that. Do you know anybody that rebuilds engines that might be ready to sell? You know, and a lot of times they go, yeah, me, what do you got? You know, another yeah. time, you know, uh, my, the guy down the street's looking to do it. I, I really don't want to, you know, I don't want to like lead you to, uh, but these, a lot of these guys are friends. So you don't ask them necessarily, are you ready to sell? I think you're missing an opportunity sometimes if you hit, hit them approach and directly say, are you ready to sell? You say, hey, here's what I'm looking for. Who do you know? And they'll right. either raise their hand and say me or say, hey, you probably should go talk to John. He's 80 years, you know, he's 80 years old. I don't do what he does and I don't want to do what he does. But if, if he doesn't do something soon, that's going to go away. Right. Absolutely. That's, that's the best way, you know, and, and first of all, everybody's for sale, right? Google is for sale. Facebook is for sale, right? Yeah. It's just a number, right? It comes down to valuation. And so I think that's a rhetorical question. When you just ask someone, are you for sale? The answer is yes. Right. And so the next question is how much and how, and, that's when you get into the, the nuts and bolts of it. But I think um, if, if business owners ask that question more often, they would get very interesting responses and it would learn a lot because you would find out what someone, you may not know what they would expect for their business until you ask that question, right? So it might be moving out of the country or they're having some life event going on. They, their you know, urgency level might be different than what you expect. And so by offering to buy you're opening up a lots of lots of opportunities for yourself and I, and, I, and i think more businesses need to do that there's also lots of financing options out there for acquisitions lots of financing options and they're much easier than than getting a home mortgage and so the underwriting process is not as complicated as you think um the the numbers you know you can get hundreds of thousands of dollars you can get tens of millions of dollars and the more actually the more money you want the less complicated it becomes <laughs> the least the less money you want the more complicated it becomes it's really interesting but uh, uh banks and, and financial uh institutions that that play in the space are uh there's lots of you know lots of them out there in the united states and they're very happy to give you a loan if you're doing an acquisition 
It's interesting. You said that there are some business out there. You know, all businesses are for sale. And we the reason I laughed when you said that is I had the article up earlier where Elon's wanting to take over Twitter. Like until last week, Twitter had no idea they were for sale. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I, I, well, yeah. Elon Musk is trying to do what's called a hostile takeover and he's, yeah. and he's going to succeed at it because he's really smart and he's got a lot of money. Yeah. And so, plus, Twitter is a stagnant organization. They need to be disrupted. And I think Musk is that guy. He disrupts. And so, I think it's a good, healthy thing and it's going to work out. I, I think for, um, you know, smaller business owners, they should perceive the world in the same way. They can look at around themselves and see, you know, like, again, a furniture manufacturer, maybe it's not a sexy story, but there's something in, in that, air, air, you know, category that's doing really well. And if you if you focus on it, you can be the leader or you can be better priced or less expensive or whatever you know strategy you want to deploy but uh even in in in, in, a, in a, you mentioned uh you know uh, car uh, automotive industry where you have repair shops or maybe engine uh, rebuilders there's something there too you know there's something going on in that industry that's really cool and sexy and 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 people should be focused on it um but sometimes they're not they're so heads down and you know doing what they're doing every day they're not looking around them so it's really important. You know, uh, a lot of people think that the like, okay, I'm looking to do, I'm going to grow, I'm going to go, do, maybe I'll do an acquisition. They start looking directly at their competitors. And if somebody asked me, you know, um, you know, who should I look at if I'm starting to acquire? I was like, okay, who do you pay right now? And they're like, what do you mean? Who are your suppliers? Like for you in the software world, do you outsource any? Like, do you out? I, I would ask you, do you outsource any of your uh, like your development on any of these companies? Do you have companies that you regularly outsource? Like. Uh, uh, the crypto side of, I mean, the, not crypto, but the uh, encryption side of things or something very specialized. You have a hard time finding staff or do you outsource that? And then you say, if you said yes, I'd go to the same company over and over again. And they go, yeah, well, that's when your acquisition targets find out if they're for sale. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like, totally. you know, concrete company I was talking to like, oh, well, you know, who would you acquire? There's only like so many people within so many miles. I was like, who do you buy your rebar from? Who do you buy your steel from? Right. Right. Who do you buy your forms? Your supply and, you know, chain. Your supply chain opportunity is your, the first place you should look because you can reduce your cost. You can in, in improve your supply chain in, environment. You can improve uh, compliance. There's a lot of reasons why you want to do that. Yeah. I've made offers to almost every single one of my supply chain partners all the time. And if they say no, I'll go back to them six months later and make another offer. And so um, some of them I've gotten very big during you know the tenure that we've been working with them just become, uh, you know, unattainable in terms of valuation but um, there are a few that that, that we want to acquire and um, we for us we do all the development in-house so all of our PhDs are focused on the encryption and compression all those areas that are really important we do that in-house we don't outsource that but there are components like billing and PCI compliance environments and certain areas of the business we, do. we don't want to figure out our own uh, e-commerce like you know, be an expert in one area. Don't try to be an expert in everything. It's just, you know, you're going to waste a lot of money. So you're, we're about 40 minutes into this and I don't want to miss this one piece. You're building this, you've, you've built and sold businesses before. So I have to assume, and maybe it's a bad assumption, right? They know what the, you know, the, the phrase for assumption is right. Uh, but I have to believe that this is, there's an exit plan somewhere. So do you have an exit plan, like kind of like a great concept of where this is going and, you're already starting to plan your exit, you know, maybe it's a year, five years, 10 years down the road, or do you even think about that yet? 
Well, we when we built uh, Real Defense, we uh, we never had a goal of selling the company. That was not the intent, and our uh, our goal was to be very profitable. And so we are trying to get to certain levels of profitability, certain levels of revenue, where um, you know the company could be you know valued at substantial valuation, and we can support. Uh, continue to do more more acquisitions, and so we don't have necessarily a, a timeline or a horizon where we say, "Oh, we got to go public," or we're going to try to sell the company. Now, someone makes us an offer, and just like we we're talking about earlier, everybody's for sale at the right valuation. So, but we don't have that as a directive within the company. Our our investors and the board is not doesn't say like to us, "Hey, guys, you know, in two years you got to sell this thing, or or else." We don't have that. And so we're very uh, operationally efficient. Uh, we try to keep our costs down and um, improve our uh, margins constantly. And so we're, we know how to do that. We use artificial intelligence very efficiently. We have um, a very good uh, FP&A and financial and analysts and all those folks that make the business tick. And, um, so the answer is I, no. The answer is no. I don't have Oh, that's good. <laughs> Yeah, I, I like it. So uh, I was just curious because, like, other people, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go public and we're gonna get it there in five years. And see, people was like, no, this is making a lot of money. We're gonna make a lot. I love your answer. We're gonna make we're we're making a lot of money. We're trying to become more efficient. We want to like make a lot more money. And at some point, we'll probably go public. It's kind of what I got out of that, right? I, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of going public anymore. I took a company public once. It's such a mess being public company. It's it's fraught with with uh, litigation and complexities and compliance. And for a business that's, if you're worth less than a billion dollars, you shouldn't go public. The thing is, it's not the cost of going public; it's maintaining public listing and liquidity environment. So in Europe, uh, public markets like the Frankfurt Exchange and the London that's Stock Exchange, yeah. yeah, they're not they're not very liquid. And so, meaning that if you're a startup and you're and you're less than let's say a half a billion dollar market cap company. You're not going to get a lot of activity. You're not going to get a lot of analyst coverage. You're not going to get a lot of trading volume. And so you're constantly going to be bouncing around and a stock's going to keep up and down, very volatile and not a lot of uh, not a lot of uh, volume. And so when you go to NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange, that's where the volume comes in. And, and Because all investors around the world trade in these exchanges in the United States. So right. I, the problem with public markets today is that the same – the same benefits you get from public markets, you can get from private markets. It's not like public markets are the only way to go raise money, the only way to grow your business. It's, it's actually absolutely the opposite. You, you, you can go and raise money doing private deals forever. Okay, You can keep recapping, restructuring your debt, restructuring your equity, acquiring companies, and not have to deal with public scrutiny. The public market scrutiny is, is horrible in the United States, particularly because the 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 the, 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 the rules that exist out there, SEC requirements, and the, the Sarbanes Oxley and Doc Frank and all those, it's because a few bad players, you know, if you remember the the you know the Enron situation and all those things, they caused some of these laws to come into into play. And so, if if SEC pulls them back and makes public environments less uh, you know, litigious and, and, and less cumbersome, less complicated, less expensive, then I think we're going to have a resurgence of IPOs and smaller companies go public. But today there's alternatives. There's the, the crypto and the blockchain environments that are, that are sort of, um, you know, uh, you know, 
competing with 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 IPOs and wants to get regulated properly, maybe that'll be the option. We've got these uh, crowdsourcing platforms where, where people are raising money through crowdsourcing and you know environments. Um, there's other ways, you know, through the small business programs to to be sort of a quasi publicly listed company. So there's other options. I, I'm just not a big fan of of IPOs in general today in today's environment. They might change hopefully, you know, a year from now, two years from now. Um, but you know, you can do just as well being private and raise money. There's plenty of capital out there. It's it's fine. You don't need to go public. One of the things I always like to ask, especially people like you who've done multiple acquisitions in this in this current business structure you have now and all the ones you've done before, what would you say your favorite acquisition was? Well, it's our flagship product. It's called Iolo. Uh, we're excited about the business. This company's been around for 20 years. Uh, eight-time winner of PC Magazine Award, you know, uh, used by millions of consumers around the world. And the best feeling I have is when I call someone Let's say I'm raising money or I'm talking to a potential business development partner and they tell me that they're using my software for the past seven years. You know, or we go into a business or bank, for example, and say, Oh yeah, we have your software running on the machines here, you know, in the office. And so it's kind of cool, like, oh, you know who we are, and I don't have to sell you on who I am. You know, you've already been using my product. And so that's a good feeling. Um, but um IOLO, yeah, IOLO is our flagship. We're excited about it and you know, we're growing it and uh, I think it was our best deal. So, yeah, I get that feeling just from this podcast. I was actually at an entrepreneur thing a couple of weeks ago. Somebody said, you're Ron Skelton, right? I was like, yeah. He goes, I watch your podcast. I'm thinking about buying some businesses. It was like, this is it's like, I'm, I'm in year two, probably about 35, 40 of recordings. So have somebody do that and they recognize you and they have value. We talked for 20 minutes and I asked, um, answered some questions. And I said, you do realize that I'm new in acquisitions and mergers, maybe one and a half, two years into it. He goes, yeah, but you've talked to all the experts. You probably know more than people that have been in this business for 15 years. I said, that's why I do the podcast. I get yeah. to learn from people that have been there, done that. And hopefully I learned your lessons so I don't repeat your mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> right? So that said, what's the worst op- uh, acquisition you've either done or almost done? Like you bought something like, oh, God, I wish we hadn't have done that. No, I, haven't, I thankfully haven't done that. Um, everything we've acquired has, has worked out. Um there's deals that we wanted to acquire that didn't work out. And, and usually, uh, well, in this, in this one instance, an example that the seller backed out because we, this is one mistake we made. And I'll tell you, this is for your listeners. Don't ever make this mistake, which is we got to the process of, of signing letter of intent with the seller, agreed on the price, agreed on the transition period. And we're about to start asset purchase agreement, which is like the last stage of the transaction. But during our meeting with the seller, they asked us, what will you do with your company? Because you're going to buy us and you're going to keep all of us around. Our goal was not to let anyone go. We wanted to keep the CEO, the COO, the CFO. Everyone was going to stay on board. And we, we were hesitant in giving them this information because we said, what if they just take this information and run with it? And then we decided, you know what? We have a deal that's almost done. We're at the 11th hour. That's not going to happen. So we gave them a, like a, a high-level playbook of what we're going to do. Guess what? The light went up in their head. They're like, why are we selling the company? These guys just told us how to 3x our revenue, 3x our profitability. And so I'll never forget this. I got a text message like at 4.30 in the morning, the day before we were supposed to close, that says we don't want to do the deal. Sorry. 
So in the real estate space, uh, I used to call this, don't ever solve the problem before you have control of the asset. Totally. Yeah, we used to divide a lot of houses out of foreclosure or or like estate issues. And they're like, oh my God, they see this huge problem. And you go, that's not a big problem. You just do step one, two, three, four, five, and and it's gone. And then they never call you back, right? Like you can't take the pain away until you control the asset. So, so. And, you know, and and of course, when you give the whole playbook and we were, uh, high level, and you know, we, we we try to incentivize them by saying, "Look, you're going to make more money as an employee. You're going to earn more. You're going to grow your company. You're going to be part of a bigger organization." But um, the, our, our our views were so, I guess, they became much clearer to them after they thought them through, and they said, "You know, they don't want to do it." Also, sometimes sellers don't want to part with their baby. You know, they they built it from scratch, and they figured, "Okay, so." Now I have millions of dollars in my bank account. I can go and, you know, play in the sand or whatever I want to do, ride my motorcycle and my boat. And then, um, and then what? Absolutely. Right. And then what? Like, and so they, they figured that if they really want that, they can just take a vacation, right? For a month or two, just go disconnect and do your thing. Come back to your business. It's still there. It's still producing and it's fine, right? And so If it's running, fine. right. Not everybody could do that. <laughs> I no, know a few owners, right. if they leave and for 30 days, their business is gone. Somebody asked me, how do I tell if my business is ready to sell? I said, take a three-week vacation, come back. If it's doing better than it was when you left, uh, wait a couple of weeks and take, a thir- take 30 days off. Take like the month of December off. <laughs> And if you and if it's running better when you come back, you're there. It's ready to sell. Like if you're wanting to Great sell point. and leave, you need to be able to prove you can leave and it still runs well. So, totally, that's so that's a good point. Yeah. We're at fifty something minutes. We're at the top of the hour. I'd love to ask people, like, if if you could leave people listening to the show with one or two top takeaways, what would that be? I would focus more on operations of your business and necessarily on how to sell it. And I would say that know how to prioritize. That's really important know how to delegate and know how to empower. And I, and I know those are the, the, the three things that I would, I would focus on as a business owner, a CEO, um, uh, even if you're not a CEO, you, you know, even if you're, uh, you know, lower level sort of in the, in the, in the, in the organizational stack, um, I would do, I would do those three things and I would really think them through and, and, you know, pause, like pause one day and just kind of like write them down and understand what, what this means. Because um, it, it, if you really figure this out, you'll see a material improvement in your organization. You don't need to go spend money on lots of books and, you know, preoccupy yourself with lots of opinions about these things. They're pr- pretty fundamental. Like prioritizing your activities is not some science. You know, it's not some exercise that you got to go through by watching a bunch of YouTube or TikTok videos. Like you can just sit down and think about it and you'll come to an answer very quickly because most businesses don't have a lot of activities going on. Like, you know, unless you're running General Motors, you know, you're, you're going to have a few things that you're doing every day that you're not maybe thinking through all the way through, you know, all the way through. And so um, those would be my three things. Cool. Awesome. I appreciate that. One last thing before we go, what are you looking for? I know it's B2B and B2C software as a service companies somewhere in the, the personal security space. But mm-hmm. if my listeners are, out, listeners are out there and they're out there looking for companies to acquire and they come across one that was a, you know, not a fit for them, but maybe a fit for you, what would that fit look like? I mean, what, you know, if they, if they wanted to make an introduction to you, reach out to your LinkedIn and say, Hey, I looked at this company. It's not right for me, but I think it's right up your alley. What would the alley be? Sure. So we look for um, 
consumer privacy and security categories, so antivirus, VPN, utilities that are that software utilities that sit on your desktop computer or they sit in the in the cloud or uh, on a mobile device. We're also interested in very uh, very much interested in supply chain um, infrastructure. So, for instance, building systems, e-commerce platforms. Uh, optimization uh, technologies that optimize content or optimize advertising, uh, artificial intelligence environments for specific areas of the supply chain. Like for instance, the call center uh, artificial intelligence technologies uh, or call centers, just the call center themselves, you know, um, uh, uh, remarketing technologies, retargeting, uh, anything that allows to optimize uh, outbound marketing and uh, uh, customer retention tools, lifetime value improvement technologies, uh, average order value improvement technologies, anything in, you know in the marketing tech ad tech stack that you can add to your organization to to improve uh, the things we just talked about. So on the front end, it's consumer facing software and apps, utilities. On the back end, it's supply chain products that can adapt that can be used for any. Uh, technology product, but uh, can be used for the, the products that we sell. So uh, it's a pretty wide spectrum. So I, I you know, covers a lot, a lot, a lot of areas. Like we're not buying restaurants. Okay. Yeah, so right, I get that. Yeah. <laughs> so if people want to reach out to you, I'm going to put your LinkedIn profile back up. It's been on the screen the whole show. Whole show. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes for those of you guys who are listening to this on your podcast. It is. Uh, it's a, the LinkedIn is a standard linkedin.com slash in G A R Y G U S E I N O V. Again, yep. it's the, the linkedin.com slash in slash G A R Y G U S E I N O V. And that'll get you to his LinkedIn profile. And then their website is real. I think I defense with the dot S E is the, uh, the last. So it's R E. A-L-D-E-F-E-N dot S-E. And we're not a Swedish company. We're an American company, Pasadena. That's just the URL. Yeah, you got create. When I first saw that, I was like, because you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of security companies that are, you know, in other countries and stuff. I was like, so I started, I did the research on it. I was like, no, I did this. It's just a cool way to make the domain name. Yeah, but oh, I, it is. I was my first yeah. instinct, like, oh, they're a Swedish company, you know. I, got, I know people <laughs> over in, uh, over there. And then I looked at looked at the research, like, no, he's in Las Vegas. I mean, Los Angeles, so he's probably not. And then I started looking at, like, I it clicked in my head. It's real defense. He just had a really creative <laughs> way of making the domain name. So, That's all it is. That's yeah. all it is. So I appreciate having you on the show. Uh, thank you for being it. Uh, do you have anything else to say before we go? I'm good. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Hang out for a second after the show. I'm going to end it now. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And that was HowToExit.com. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show. Ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale, and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. The Investors and Entrepreneurial's Professional Mastermind. 
The Investors and Entrepreneurial Professional Mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer mastermind introduced first in Napoleon Hill's famous book, Think and Grow Rich, with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T-I-E-P-M. PM.com and check out the Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind.